Hey, science fans. One thing we don't get to talk about enough on this show is environmental concerns, ecology, resources, that sort of thing. I wish we we had more on, on this topic on the show. Fortunately, I found a new podcast that I believe you guys will enjoy called Waterline. Waterline podcast is everything related to water, how to make sustainable irrigation, can water bring peace, how do you uh, keep water clean and and safe and how much money does does our current water system cost in the US what changes can we make and how we use water i just listened to a fantastic episode called water in peace hydropolitics it was all about um, the many different conflicts over different regions of water we've drawn all of these arbitrary lines for our kind of political regions and one thing that we didn't really factor in when doing that was water sources so now there's all of these uncomfortable to say the least conflicts uh, where all of these areas overlap over water sources fantastic episode the waterline podcast is an initiative of israel new tech a part of the israeli ministry of economy and industry so check it out for everything you need to know about the economics political social behavioral technological and environmental aspects of water search for waterline podcast on itunes or in your android podcast app are we yes where are we here why are we here not entirely clear we are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all it's immensely bizarre here we are welcome everybody to the here we are podcast thanks for listening special episode today um i had you may remember past guest todd shackleford he was one of the favorite episodes i actually i didn't i i didn't i right to tell you that um it's gotten a ton of downloads and oh people good are, good uh real excited about it um good. sperm competition well, always you know. a favorite that's right <laughs> always yeah. a favorite right. topic <laughs> and and so i'm i'm back in i'm i'm performing in royal oak michigan at uh mark ridley's comedy castle a cool place if you're ever around the area you should check it out um and so i i wrote todd again and um and I was like, hey, how would you like to come on uh, with your wife, who um, he also works with? And so he, uh, he asked her, and I'm, so I'm getting an exclusive oh, That's right. interview <laughs> with Viviana Weeks Shackleford, everybody. Mm-hmm. Woo! That's right. How are you doing, Viviana? I'm doing well today. Thank you. She's told me ahead of time she was a little nervous. Yes. I'm already see she's settling in oh, already. Yes. I can tell she's already feeling That's right. Uh, a lot more comfortable. How did you guys uh, meet originally? Did so guys... do you want to tell or you want me to tell it? You take the first step. Yeah, so basically, so we met, uh, well, it was about 17 years ago. Uh, we're coming up on our 15th anniversary, wedding anniversary. Um, we met uh, soon after I arrived <laughs> a, as a new assistant professor at Florida Atlantic University. And Viviana was finishing up um, school there and was working in a different lab, and our paths crossed, and we met, and, I mean, it was, uh, 
you know, it was love at first sight. Uh, you were like, this guy knows a lot about sperm. Yes. That was very impressive. <laughs> That's exactly what I, I was looking for, a guy. <laughs> I usually get the opposite. Yeah. Usually girls are like, this guy knows a lot about yeah. sperm, and then they run away from me. But, yeah, that's right. Uh, well, yeah. at, that t- at that time, there was just I- ideas. Yeah, we were really just... It, yeah, that's right. We actually... I hadn't done any work specifically. In, no, I really hadn't in the mm-hmm. area. I was just... I was hired as a... Um, I mean, evolutionary psychology wasn't super well known at that time. Right. And so um, I guess a lot of the things we had done at that point were on mate preferences and jealousy. And I mean, it's, you know, it's not hard for people to appreciate that it's, I mean, it is interesting. I mean, whether you are or are not jealous or are in a relationship, not in a relationship, this is stuff that people care about. So, and some people like uh, Viviana, I mean, it clicks and you, and I felt the same way. Once I learned about this area, it was just, oh, yeah. you know, I couldn't, that was it. You know, I couldn't turn away. Yeah, I, I felt the same way when I started learning about this stuff. It was just like, oh, everything yeah. starts making so much yeah. sense. All well, of these, and, and especially all the things you're so frustrated about. In life. Yeah. yeah, well, for me too, when I um, was first introduced to evolutionary psychology, it was, it just, it changed my life. And, you yeah. know, not to sound cliche or, um, but really it does, um, you know, provide a lens. Um, of life, nature, just totally different. Um, and it's a lot clearer. Um, you have answers. You can seek answers, um, questions to those answers. Um, and so it's been a way of life. So we do this in academia. We apply um, an evolutionary pers- perspective to um, the things we study, but we also apply it to the way we, we live. You know? So it's a really neat um, area, and it's been uh, life-altering. Well, you have uh, you have children yes. and everything as well, and um, and uh, well, I mean that that's an interesting um, subject. How how would you say are the many ways that you apply some of what you've been learning in your research to how you live? Well, one thing, um, well, you can imagine that there's a lot of joking inside jokes between Todd and I that the kids don't, you know, <laughs> necessarily right. follow or, you know. Um, but one thing that we do talk about and actually joke about, and I guess it is sort of in a twisted way, um, I don't think we have like a normal sense of humor, <laughs> definitely outside the box sort of sense of humor, but um, there is a, um, a researcher called Judith Rich Harris who... Um, was you know became very well known for us, a um, what is it called a meta analysis that she uh, published uh, where she basically says so I'm just really bottom bottom lining it for you uh, that parents don't matter in the development of children that it's really their peers that influence um, developmental outcomes later on so um, you know a lot of times and that's really contrary to you know, other research in, um, in development, um, I think it's uh, also contrary to what most people, you know, layperson would think that parents do everything. I mean, we, we actually do a lot, you know, we, <laughs> <laughs> we do a lot. And are you saying it's, this doesn't matter? You know, so it's very upsetting. And if you think about it that way, I mean, you know, I am upset about the finding too, <laughs> but the data are the data. And, um, but it actually is sort of relieving, you know, so Yes, um, we do what we have to, what we are, you know, our evolved minds have designed for us to do, Um, yet, uh, you know, we're not to blame for the the negative outcomes. (laughs) Yeah, it's the kids they're running around with. Right, yeah, right. So exactly. And um, 
so you know we joke when the kids do something and I'll, you know I'll talk with them and say you know I really don't know how to handle this I mean I don't know what to do and you know we'll talk and we'll say hey it doesn't even matter anyway so well. <laughs> you know it really doesn't matter in the end you know they're gonna they're, so I mean but that's you know that's the a very broad sort of take on it and uh, and there are limitations there are constraints and so forth so we've got to keep that in mind as well. I mean, I'll tell you, I mean, it, because you have um, a 13 and a 14-year-old. Yeah, so and a 9-year-old and into a 3-year-old. Uh, yeah, I, well, I would, see, I, I think that the 13 and 14 would be the scariest thing about oh, parenting. It's beyond me. scary. And, and when you're talking right. about forcing yourself to give up control and everything, because that's sort of right around that age. I, I mean, I remember, uh, I mean, a big part of, my development was that I was I was just uh, I was a nightmare of a right. of a teenager and and it was like the stricter my parents tried to be the right. more I rebel and I had another friend exactly like that but then like our friend that his parents had no rules no curfew he was he was like always honor roll and the well behaved one and now is uh, you know has the right. good uh, job and all of that that's I have a good job I got but it's yeah. like weird job sure (laughs) i have the kind of job that someone that screwed up for a good part of their life um fortunately stumbled into um so so what what does some of the research say about um kind of around that time and um kind of i guess the evolutionary psychology of of um of of parent child conflict and because because at that time, I you know that's a lot of a lot of what people go through is or or kids go through is all of a sudden you're starting to turn and you're getting embarrassed by your parents sure. rather than like right. running toward them or right. whatever. Well, I mean, I mean, this is actually an area that um, is a relatively new area within mm-hmm. evolutionary psychology. It's often referred to as evolutionary developmental psychology, and that actually is the area that Viviana is specialized has specialized in and working with uh, David Bjorklund who's uh, also somebody you might consider talking with in South Florida. But at any rate, um, he's a, an excellent, sco- wonderful scholar and has really been the leading sort of edge of, uh, of this new area of applying evolutionary thinking to developmental psychology. And so, uh, I mean, the truth is I probably won't be able to speak very intelligently about the, about the topic. Um, but the other part of it is that there's just not that much work. I mean, mm-hmm. you would think there would be, given that, I mean, you don't get much more important than parent-child relationships and interactions. And yet, um, it does strike me, uh, but Viviana may wish to speak differently about this, that many developmental psychologists, it would seem, are not terribly open to an evolutionary perspective. Hmm. Um, and I'm not, I've never quite figured that out. And I think, um, and yet there is this new vanguard of, you know, sort of evolutionary developmental psychology. And so the bottom line is that this, this area is absolutely wide open. And Viviana and some of our graduate students have been doing some work on looking at parent-child relationships and um, religious belief, um, and you know the influence of, of parental uh, religion on the development of, of beliefs, uh, religious beliefs. So really, I don't know if and, you... well, uh, first maybe for the listeners, just to set up um, some, and, and for me, <laughs> just set up some very very basic kind of um, stuff about. I, I mean, just just the vague little bit of stuff that I've I've read on the subject is is the idea is is that children are quite costly um, to parents and also children kind of are trying to get 
as much energy, time and energy and resources and everything else out of their parents as possible. And, and parents might be wanting to give as much and, uh, of an advantage in life and everything else to, um, uh, you know, and increase fitness and, uh, and, and all of that. But at the same time, there's only so much you can give. So this conflict is coming where uh, maybe a child is wanting more, especially early on probably in the development, and, and there's only so much parents can give. Sure. Um, is that kind of the basics of some of like the very early development? Yeah, well, I agree with Todd that, um, you know, that this area, especially in adolescence, um, there is not much work looking at it from an evolutionary perspective. Um, so, you know, Todd mentioned that my training um, or some of my training is in evolutionary developmental psychology. Um, but my advisor, uh, David Bjorklund, um, initially was, you know, sort of a mainstream developmental psychologist. So not really taking in evolutionary principles into understanding development. Um, and so the sort of um, spin that I've taken with this uh, perspective in evolutionary developmental um background is looking at, like Todd mentioned, uh, parent-child relationships in terms of um, uh, the acquisition of religiosity. And then another new area that we've be begun to explore um, that I think is, well, I, of course I think I think this, but is <laughs> really interesting and intriguing, um, is that of, um, you know, the extent to which children um, play a role in parental sexual psychology not relationship between the parent and child but yeah. what happens to moms and dads uh, sexual psychology after they have kids a lot of research not just in evolutionary psychology but even you know mainstream um psychological research focuses on um which is convenient uh, you're studying mills <laughs> basically you said that <laughs> uh, okay uh, sorry, what does God. that mean i, I have to i don't even know it. what it means <laughs> you're kidding me okay all right because your kids are listening all right uh, we'll, 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 <laughs> they have google uh <laughs> um and so yeah, so one of the things that I, I've been interested in, um, and you know, Todd's been a collaborator as well, is, um, oh yes, yeah, so I was telling you that a lot of the research focuses on and uses subjects that are of college age, young, um, you know, women and men, and, you know, just combing through the literature and thinking about, you know, what can I do? What am I going to do? <laughs> um, you know, and, and having this sort of evolutionary developmental uh, background, um, you know, I wondered, you know, wait a second just because you have children, I mean, this doesn't mean your psychology, your sexual psychology changes. And um, over evolutionary history, certainly, you know, children were a part of that ancestry. Um, and so the question then becomes, was it, you know, the presence of a child enough of a selection pressure, um, a selection pressure to, you know, play a role in sort of, you know, carving the mind um, to um, make decisions about mates, taking into con consideration the presence of that child, um, and we know, you know, some estimates are about, you know, fifty percent of people 
divorce. Um, and so, and that, that number has been pretty consistent, you know, so, you know, what, what happens after this in terms of their sexual psychology, do the preferences change Do the things they look for in a mate change? Um, what other variables like, um, maybe her age or, um, whether she has, you know, a son or a daughter, do, do, do those variables play I a saw role? Some yeah. of your work that I was really, I'd never seen anything about. Oh. I was, I was struck by was yeah. the idea of, of, um, uh, of women and, and their daughters possibly having an influence on their um, oh, yeah. on their attractiveness. Yeah, yeah, it's mate. yeah, yeah. So that's yeah, that was one of those topics that you know we. I think I remember the drive <laughs> Todd and I driving to a dinner or something at a party, and um, you know I have this thought, and I, I you know I feel just awful thinking about this because. Yeah. In theory, it sounds wonderful, but to then you know to utter the words, yeah, in, yeah. you know, using well, common you words. Guys do a lot of stuff. <laughs> yeah. To, yeah, to utter the world, it's coming from me. Yeah. <laughs> utter these, ter- you know, words. I mean, it just sounds really bad. But um, yeah, so this area, um, this is a, yeah another area. I was just gonna say you should. It would be so. You might as well just ex- just be explicit about the the hypothesis. So are you, Shannon? You're, you're referring to the work on luring, the yeah. use of. Of, yeah, yeah. of daughters, for example, yeah, uh, for women to lure a new mate, right? Um, yeah, I mean, as Viviana's mentioning, it's, I mean, it was a uh, sort of we both sort of, I think Viviana had had the the idea, but then as soon as we said it, it was like such a horrible, you know, notion, and yet I think there's it's theoretically it, it, you know, it's not outrageous. Right. Well, it might be outrageous, but but uh, yeah, so that notion that women may actually use their existing children from a previous relationship. In an effort to attract, um, I mean, a new at, mate. at first that seems like a you know kind of um, eh, I, I don't know, like oh that's not that's, it, sounds, it sounds very dark and everything but but the logic of it is is you know it's it's you're showing like hey I made this thing look at this fertile thing that I've made it's kind of advertising your own, your own. Fertility and fitness. Yeah. Or is, is that kind That's of the okay. idea well, behind it ish? Maybe. It's even darker. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, is it? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, but there is, I think Josh Dunley's yeah. done stuff on, you know, you know, sh- showing your uh, proof. Look what I can do, you know. So there is oh, that okay. advertising aspect. But what we were, um, and I don't know if you were hinting at this with what you just said, but yeah, so she's using it as an advertisement for, okay, well, here's a, I mean, I don't know. The first thing that comes to my mind is a two for one. You've got me oh. for sexual access, and then you've got, you know, right. this my daughter who is prepubescent, maybe right now, but you know, in a few years, you when know, there's I'm no a two for one. Fertile, yeah, right. or yeah. So it's kind of um, hmm. sick. Hmm. Um, but, but this stuff happens. Yeah, yeah and yeah, the thing yeah. is, but the one thing that that is very important to think about, just as you know, we don't tell our hearts to beat. We don't tell our, you know, our legs to, you know, take the next step and so forth. Um, you know, we are not doing this consciously. You know, so a woman's not saying, well, I'm going to take, you know, get my daughter today. I mean, there may be those one or two women that explicitly say, I'm going to use my daughter to, <clears throat> you know, catch catch a, a good guy. Um, but for the most part, this happens at an unconscious level, you know, something that we can't. Um, I have there's a girl on Facebook that chats with me and I think a lot of times that um, that that girls if they have like really young kids they might not be 
um, upfront about that in the beginning right. or whatever. Um, but uh, but there's a girl on Facebook that talks about her teenage daughter. See? Sure. Uh, all all the time. I was like, I'm not asking about you know. We're not even having much of a conversation, but it it comes up. Right. And so the thing. Right. And so I want to explore that a little more. Yeah. You know, like you know, why would she do that? You know, knowing that okay, the risk. You know, of her potential. You know, mate abusing her daughter you know right. i mean why would she subject herself and her daughter to this um not only that but be, the other thing i wanted to add that you know the, the com- one component of this is that it's um sort of a manipulation of male sexual psychology so we know that men um desire youth and um you know other characteristics attractiveness um in a mate and so women may you know manipulate male psychology hey what okay <laughs> women definitely <Darn>. manipulate <laughs> a male sexual psychology to get what they want so this is one means it may not be you know the best but you know that i mean we we don't know and what that's why i want to explore yeah well <laughs> no, no you're you're here you're <laughs> i've made it this far yeah, so. well i mean what i like about uh, and and you know i'm not super familiar and that's why i'm yeah. here to learn more but one of the things that i respect about uh, your work is i i i love when scientists dive into really yeah dark topics especially with uh you know your research on on um uh, abuse and mm-hmm. and step parents and everything else because it's like I, a lot of people are like let's never talk about this th- thing and you're going in and trying to figure out hey why is this happening right. why are people doing this and and maybe right. we can use this information oh, to get to social service people or you know whatever else so they can be on guard for this and know what to look for and and that sort of thing oh absolutely um so so can you talk a little bit about uh that because you mentioned that you know one of these one of these risks of of this um, lure is uh, poten- you might potentially be endangering your daughter. Yeah. Um, well, some of the research that both of us, uh, Todd, uh, have done uh, looking at uh, differences in the motivational psychology between step parents and genetic parents, and um, we were both inspired uh, by researchers um, named uh, Daly w- uh, Martin Daly and Margot Wilson, who has since passed. Um, but um, they really set the groundwork for this area, looking at um, you know motivational differences and um, you know threats of uh, the risk of abuse and murder by by parents. So uh, Todd and I, we did some follow up work looking at. Um, we actually used the um, FBI data set, right? We did. Yeah. yeah. Um, and we wanted to replicate some of Daly and Wilson's uh, findings. Um, I think they used a Canadian database, right? And one from England. Yeah. Yeah. And so they found, you know, just just really, really high risk um, of um, step uh, abuse and uh, filicide, which is the murder of a child by a parent, um, you know, that it was just... I don't know, a hundred times greater, right? Up to a hundred times greater. Yeah. Risk of murder. When it's a step, a a parent rather than the biological parent. Yeah. Yeah. Usually the comparison is, uh, so uh, children living with two genetic parents versus children living with one genetic parent, one step parent. Right. Uh, I mean, the rates are even higher based on some of the more recent work for kids who live with a mother's boyfriend. Um, so where a marriage, a formal social, you know, declaration hasn't been made about this, the status of this relationship. 
Um, and what's kind of the working ideas of, of how the basics uh, of the, I mean, uh, you look in the animal kingdom and, and a male lion has this, um, uh, what do they call it? A harem or a troop or a, a troop of females or whatever. And right. then um, pride, right? Yeah. A pride, pride. Right. Yeah. That's what it is. Yeah. Pride, pride of lions. Uh, that's um, right. <laughs> and, uh, and then uh, a new male might come in and take over, and any um, young cubs there, uh, he might kill off because he doesn't have any genes, anything invested in this, and this is more of a cost to him. Uh, these sure. things might grow up, be a threat to him, and everything else. We've all seen The Lion King. Um, That's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so is that a little bit of kind of the basic foundations of... That's precisely it. I mean, that's precisely the argument for why we might expect step-parents to present a greater risk to their children, to stepchildren, than do genetic parents. Um, And as Viviana mentioned, I mean, the rates are, these aren't small differences. I mean, these are extraordinary differentials in terms of the risk, particularly when you get to the more serious, uh, uh, you know, the more serious crimes like murder. Um, I mean, you're looking at 40 to 100 times greater risk. Um, and so uh, one of the things that, that we did, and this is really uh, the work that, that Viviana took the lead on, is looked at uh, differences in the methods by which step-parents and genetic parent- parents kill their children as a, as a potential window into the psychology that motivates um, this conflict between uh, step-parents step and their kids and then genetic parents and their kids. And so, and we found some, uh, partly it was replicating some of the work that Daley and Wilson had done, but we found some, you know, some really powerful differences in the ways, in the means, or the methods by which step-parents killed their children um, relative to the way that genetic parents killed their children. And so, for example, we found that um, step-parents were far more likely than were genetic parents to bludgeon their children to death. Um, Genetic parents, when they killed their kids, were much more likely to do so, like with a single gunshot to the head. Or, I mean, um, as quick and painless. That's right. And that was the argument: is that it suggests a difference in the underlying psychology, and and very often you'll find. Uh, so in in uh, notes, if a, if a genetic parent kills him or herself after killing a child, which they are much more likely to do than as a step parent, they'll often leave a note, and or if it's not a note, there'll be a subsequent interview with the police where the parent will. The you know is grief stricken and says I, I I was rescuing my child from the awful you know from the awfulness of life you right. know because I love him or her so much with a step parent the the reason you often get you know following a, a killing is something seemingly trivial I was sick and tired of listening to that kid cry yeah. um, and I don't I think you know we don't expect them to have sort of a, a conscious you know so be able to consciously articulate the evolutionary logic that of built course. those adaptations. Um, but uh, so you do see some some really interesting, very powerful differences in the in the in the psychology that motivates uh, killing, and, and that's revealed, we think, in part by the methodology that's used to kill kids. That's uh, that is a, such fascinating uh, work, and it's it's so dark and it is incredibly, yeah. I'm sure, very controversial and everything else, and um, but man, that's incredibly important because what. What worse thing is there in the world? And I mean, if if we should get down to the bottom of anything, 
Um, you know, that I, I'm trying to think of like, uh, <laughs> I'm like, do I want to lighten things up right now or keep <laughs> no, diving? <laughs> do you, you have darker than that for me? Well, keep going there. Yeah. I, I mean, there is some interesting, there's the, like, uh, the age difference, um, I saw in, 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 uh, in the children and, and how, and that effect on, um, kind of grieving or, or, um, uh, right there's some, something well, with... um I am not sure about grieving but there are differences so you know children under 2 years old they're they have you know a much higher rate uh, or a higher risk for being killed um than you know older children and uh the other thing too that you know just to maybe lighten it up a little bit is that <clears throat> you know it's very rare that a step parent kills a child you know so while the rates are, you know, when you compare them are, you know, it's sickening. Um, most of the time, the parent, you know, step parents yeah. don't kill their, their, their kids. Um, so that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but yeah, but when it does happen, right, it's very upsetting, very disturbing. And if, if this is true, you know, I mean, we do have this data, but you know, we'd love to see more researchers, you know, uh, attacking yeah. this, this area so that it can go out you know, into the, you know, application world where they can actually, you know, not maybe not warn step parents, but maybe if there's a, a case of abuse in a family where there's a step parent, okay, maybe you need to really, you know, put two people on yeah, it, yeah. you know, and really follow up, you know, have certain guidelines or red flags, you know, we've got a, you know, I don't, I don't know how it works out there, but it just, it's crazy because it's a, you know, how, how else can a two year old or one year old, you know, um, it, the child cannot do anything right, to, right. to defend itself. So I, I think a big part of, of this uh, too is just, uh, I mean, why people don't want to talk about it. And uh, I mean, it's, it's just so much easier to go like, well, that was just an insane person and they didn't know what they're in, which I'm sure that is the case sometimes. It's, but, it's going to happen. But, but, um, <laughs> but you know, it, it's very easy for us to, um, make up these, these reasons to to kind of uh, justify to yourself and say, well, this is never going to happen to me or anyone I know right. because these are these people so far away from me and so different and crazier than you know anyone that I know, and so right. you know this isn't something that I have to care about. Um, I cut you off. No, I mean, uh, um, yeah, I mean that just, but that's actually not the case. I mean, I just, it, it occurred to me, we actually had a student working in the lab. Um, oh. Neither of us knew that, you know, she was a, uh, you know, slightly older woman, very bright. Um, she was a student in the lab and we were doing some of this work and we came to find out that she herself, one of her children was killed by, in this case, the mother of, uh, the sorry, the, the stepmother. Um, so she had split from her partner uh, and uh, long story short, you know, we came to realize that, well, no, she told us that yeah. her child had been murdered. Wow. Um, and, you know, I mean, and the thing is, um, and uh, Viviana has put together an incredible data set at, just in South Florida studying over a 10-year period, the three counties in South Florida, so Broward, Dade, and um, Palm Beach, mm -hmm. 10 years, um, just murders, child murders that are reported in the newspaper, and then digging in further, um, it's like 150, 100, yeah. about 150 uh, murders in three counties over just 10 years. Okay, multiply that times, you know, whatever, for the rest of the United States for 
you know, however the length of time you want to do it. The bottom right. line is that it's a problem. Yeah. It's a major problem. Yeah. But but I think the I mean, Viviana mentioned, you know, what you know, some of the things you can do with it, but it is super controversial. I mean, look, the reality is And something's driving it too. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the reality is residents with a step parent is, as best we know, the single best predictor of child neglect, abuse, and murder. I mean, there is no better predictor. And yeah. all of the I mean, there are things that do account for some of the variants as well. Sure. Alcohol abuse, drug abuse, socioeconomic status. I mean, there's no doubt. Poor educational, you know, background. These all contribute, but by far, I mean, abs you know, magnitude of order difference is residence with a non genetic uh, parent, uh, step parent, for example. And yet, what do you do with that? I mean, then, for, I mean, I've actually, we've talked about this and we've both given talks on these kind of topics. And, you know, why not consider, I'm not necessarily advocating because I think it also has costs, but why not consider that if a couple, you know, is wanting to marry, I mean, you have to apply for marriage license, this sort of stuff, why not ask about their current children from this or previous relationships? And if you identify that there's a child from a previous relationship, why not use that as an opportunity to offer additional counseling about, well, okay, you're going to get a little stressed out, and sometimes you might feel a little less yeah. close, or whatever. I mean, I don't know. That's very reasonable, because yeah. we're not even talking about, um, you know, this doesn't just apply to the worst of the worst. No. This is, this is just like, a, you know, losing your temper and, and oh. maybe uh, hitting a kid or... or or even verbally being abusive or, or anything else. Right. There, there's all these varying degrees, and this is right. uh, obviously going to be a problem. I mean, everyone gets, my dad yelled at me. You know, right. there, there's some degree for that everyone has to cope with. And, right. and um, so, yeah, I mean, that, that seems right. very reasonable to. But I guess the idea counseling. is that, you know, if you're, you're then red flagging, you're applying some very general statistics, which, as Viviana mentioned, most stepkids are fine. And probably yeah. have, I would venture to say, a reasonable relationship, you know, a reasonably healthy relationship with their step parent. But then what you're doing is you're taking broad, you know, uh, statistics and you're applying it to a particular couple. And I can imagine, well, I know that people are like, wait a second, you know, I don't want to be red flagged. Why are you red flagging me? <laughs> um, right. So, but, you know, these are the questions that policymakers, you know, well, that the public, I think, should at least consider. Because um, it does seem outrageous that, you know, they don't at least have the opportunity to, I don't know, talk about. So how do you think you guys will deal with, you know, some of the challenges that come up with, you know, having children from previous relationships? I mean, at least I think it's think just it. awkward for people and I they guess. don't want to talk about yeah. it. It's like you just got to buck up and I mean, what are they going to say? You know, well, I would never hurt yeah. that child. Right. Somebody is. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm sure you believe that, <laughs> you know. Well, so you teased it, uh, just to change topics a little bit, you teased it this earlier, and it's been on my mind ever oh, since. No. Um, uh, Because this sounds fascinating. Acquisition of uh, religion as, yeah. as, a, uh, as a child. Can you talk about that yeah. a little bit? This yeah. is something. Uh, Todd and I talked a little bit about our upbringings on, uh, we did. on, on the uh, previous episode. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, so again, uh, let's see. What were you thinking then? Okay, so... The latest round of surveys and research that we are um, exploring, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just thinking. Um, Take your time. <clears throat> um, okay, so this actually goes back to, um, there's, I think, there's probably more arguments, but the two that we are focusing on, on, um, you know, where do children acquire, uh, not language, uh, religion. Um, so there's two camps we argue one is that 
you know, children will are the religion that their parents are. Okay, so that basically their parents teach them, uh, you know, about their their family religion. Um, so that's one way of acquiring uh, religion. And then the second one is that perhaps it's uh, peers, and this is goes back to Judith Rich's uh, Judith Rich Harris's. Um, uh, research showing that you know it's not parents uh, that um, you know that play a role in in child development, you know in that aspect. So um, we decided to explore that a little further, and um, and I say we, but I think it's mostly mostly the graduate students have, have spent a lot of time on this, uh, you know, developing these these surveys. Um, but basically, what we did. Uh, do you want these details? Absolutely. (laughs) I'm Uh, (laughs) I'm deeply interested in uh, religiosity. Okay, so basically, you know, and I'm still becoming familiar with the literature, so bear with me, and this is not in stone. Um, um, But uh, the literature that we have explored really um, didn't, um, um, I don't know, I'm sorry, I'm lost for words. Um, didn't really capture uh, an individual's religiosity in the way that we would be satisfied. Um, and so, um, not that there aren't any you know measures or scales that can be used to assess religiosity, but we didn't think that they you know they captured it. I just said that. Um, and what do we mean? What do I mean by that? Um, so, some surveys, in order to address religiosity, might ask. Um, you know, do you pray? Uh, do you go to church? Um, you know, do you pray before meals? Things like that. Um, others might be, you know, I don't know, might ask, um, you know, do you, uh, you know, spread the word? Do you, you know, so they, uh, they, you know, kind of develop a, the construct of really religiosity um, in different ways. And um, we know that, you know, not everyone goes to church and, um, you know, and some people that do go to church might say, no, I'm not really religious. I do go to church every Sunday. So what we wanted to do, um, and we thought that a better way of capturing um, what it means to be religious is, you know, tapping into the individual. So so what we did initially is we asked, I don't know, I think uh, maybe two or 300 uh, participants to list um, the ways in which their parents uh, influence their religious beliefs and the ways in which their peers influence their religious beliefs. And so basically we got, um, I don't know, thousands <laughs> and thousands of ways, you know, a lot of re- repetition and so forth, um, but ways in which the participant, um, you know, viewed their parental influence on, of religion and their peers. Um so that was the first step. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So then, and so I say the researchers are graduate students. They went through these thousands and thousands of um, act nominations is what we call them. I'm having a feeling you're about to tell me that me blaming my parents fully for dragging me to <laughs> church every Sunday may have been a little overboard. No, it probably didn't play a role at all. <laughs> yeah. um, and so basically, so that, that was the first step in the research. And so now um, what we have done is devised a scale. We whittled those down, you know, got rid of all the repetitions and um, things that, you know, really didn't make sense uh, to us. And uh, so now we're working on putting the scale together. Um, what we hope to do is 
uh, administer this sur- these set of surveys uh, coming up uh, either in the summer or probably the fall, but really to you know tease apart um, uh, religiosity in a better way, I think a more accurate way, um, you know, sort of getting at the individual's perception of religious beliefs. And um, and then comparing, you know, to what extent do parents influence children's religious beliefs and uh, the extent that, that peers do. And so what we're asking them to do is uh, think about this retrospectively. So it's not the best way to do it, because uh, ideally, we, I mean, eventually we'd like to ask children themselves, um, you know, so we'll use the same list. So let's say that a participant said, um, you know, my mom... Um, made me read the Bible for 30 minutes every day. Um, so we could ask a child, um, you know, at what age did your mother or whoever, um, you know, ask you to do this? Um, when was the last time you did it? Um, you know, how old are you now? And things like that. So mm-hmm. then we'll do the statistical analyses to, you know, look at the relation, relationship between, you know, the extent to which that influenced the, the children's, the child's uh, Religiosity. I ran out of air. Um, yeah, so we are very excited about that, uh, this research, because, um, again, it's uh, one of those things that I think it's a little harder to get at. And, you know, oftentimes researchers, you know, sort of, you know, hit the wall thinking that, okay, well, we can't really ask children and retrospective accounts, you know, that's really not going to do. But we see it as, okay, you know, this is a baby step, you know, let's you know, it's not going to be a perfect study, but let's ask college students to think back over, you know, while you were growing up um, and then, you know, ask these questions. Um, and, you know, it'll give us some sense okay. of, and, of what's going on. And your feeling is, is that maybe there's just a lot more peer influence going on. Right. Going yeah. On. Well, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Um, but that's, that's it. That's the idea. Yeah. Right. So we're interested. I mean, I think I think we could argue for hypotheses, you know, uh, for both, both, uh, both. Yeah, we could argue you know, support for both hypotheses. So, I mean, either way, it's really, really interesting uh, research that we're that we're getting going. Because I've even seen like genetic things of. Um, I think um, Robert Sapolsky has an idea that um, that um, much like uh, oh man, I, come on, genetics courses. <laughs> um, what, what's the what's the sickle cell and the um, the the one where the the like why is this happening? The um, there there's one allele that's bad for um, oh the recessive and dominant yeah the recessive genes? and yeah. dominant um, and there there's one that like uh, if you get it you'll get um, you'll get sickle cell but if you don't get it then you're protected against malaria yeah yeah yeah, yeah <laughs> right something like that and, and there's something along those lines with um, but he has an idea with schizophrenia, like how is schizophrenia? Um, uh, how do we still have it? And the idea is, is that there's this these schizotypoid people right. um, that are are showing uh, families that have schizophrenics have um, a lot of family members uh, with schizotypoid personalities that are just um, very very religious and everything, mm. but no understand they have they still have the context and understand when to pull that out right. and when to use it whereas schizophrenics don't have control over that mm-hmm. right. um and and so so yeah I, I guess i've i've always understood it as as um 
as either, uh, I mean, well, I blamed my parents <laughs> most of my life. <laughs> and then, and then I had learned later on that, oh, maybe there's a, you know, a lot of these genetic variables and, and some interesting ideas, but I hadn't actually never really heard the pyramid. I, I mean, it makes sense. I'm yeah. from a small town yeah. and it was, I mean, I thought I was crazy because everybody was religious. Sure. I was the one person that was, as far as I knew, I'm sure yeah. there's probably more people probably. having doubts, yeah. you know, like me that just weren't open about them right. like I wasn't. And, um, and, and so, yeah, I, I think that, that peer, you know, the, even though I went to public school, I think that the, having all of my classmates, to the best of my knowledge, being religious and basically the same, you know, Christianity right, for sure. the most part. And, and uh, I, I think now that you say that, that does have yeah. a, uh, a large influence. Yeah, so we'll see. Um, Were it, you raised religious? I was. Yeah? Yep. Went to Catholic middle school Where are you school. from? South Florida. Yeah. South Florida? Cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, and... Um, but I, too, my family was not, you know, they weren't like Bible thumpers or anything like that. But <clears throat> I think religious enough. Uh, and um, but I think like you, too, I, you know, had my doubts, couldn't quite bring them out, you right. know, one way or the other, you know. Um, and it wasn't until, you know, uh, quite a bit after high school that, um, you know, it all made sense, my behavior yeah. Back then, like, you know, not wanting to go to church and why? And, and, you know, these questions, what makes him different? You know, and, you right. know, he's a human too, yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, and so, it, it, yeah. So in retrospect, you know, it all made sense. But at the time, you know, friends are religious. It's something we didn't talk about. It's just what you did. Hmm. And, sure. um, well, I mean, the peer pressure different. of it is still. I mean, as I'm thinking, as an adult, I mean, it's still. look at look at politics. You can't yeah. you can't run for anything if you don't, uh, yeah, <laughs> say, say something about uh, it, it. You know, uh, blessing God or whatever it is. I remember when they got um, uh, Bin Laden and and um, Obama made a speech and and this, like right. and. Uh, may God bless her, whatever it is. It's like, well, you just wasn't the whole point. You just caught a religious extremist, right? And then right. You, right. Your closing statement, sure. Is this yeah. religious one. It's like uh, the the pressure is unreal, really. Uh, that it's still as an adult and in this day and age, it seems um, a bit much. And you know, I, I I mean, going back and visiting family, and then any yeah, of the holidays and everything else, right. and that's uh, that's kind of the expectation and and going with uh and knowing people um i know a lot of people that have gotten married and like well it's not really my thing but you know appeasing parents or grandparents or whatever it might be right. um but uh but that's that's really interesting that oh well maybe that that's friends too and if you're especially in a small town, if you're doing sure. business with a bunch of people, this is a part of the community. And it can ruin you. You're advertising oh, yeah. your morals and everything else. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I was just going to highlight one of the things that uh, Viviana didn't mention, I think is one of the most important things about the work that, uh, that she and uh, some of the graduate students are doing is that, um, I mean, the literature that looks at the development of religiosity I mean, it's super simplistic. In other words, they'll just ask, 
Are you religious? Yes or no? Did your parents encourage you to be religious? Yes or no? You know, and so what they're doing is really unpacking all of that. What does that mean to have a parent influence or attempt to influence mm. one's religion or one's religious behaviors? And so, I mean, you know, hence they've ended up at this point with, you know, a list of 150 or 170 different specific things that parents do by children's, by grown children's own reports. These are the things that my parents did. Um, to try to get me to be more religious. Um, yeah, and we and we use those words specifically. Yeah, so what things did your parents do to you, say to you, or you know, did with you uh, that you think influence your religious beliefs? Yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, regardless of one's theoretical perspective, I mean, we happen to have arrived at this topic from an evolutionary perspective, mm-hmm. but I think this has the potential to be a really useful way to assess. I mean, to really get at sort of the details of religious acquisition, uh, religious belief acquisition, you know, um, digging into exactly what parents are saying or doing or what peers are saying or doing or implying, um, you know, uh, to give a much richer picture of what we're calling loosely religious acquisition um, rather than relying on checking yes or no, you know, Mm. did your parents attempt to influence you? Um, so, I mean, I think oh, it's, it's very cool seeing stuff. Seeing the yeah. results of yeah. that. Do you have any other projects that you're working on that you're real excited about right now, either of you? Um, well, I mean, it would cause us to shift I Well, I, I have in my back pocket, <laughs> I, I, yeah. I, have, uh, I have one thing that I definitely want to get to, um, and, and maybe this will be help shift topics but but i i'm curious you you've done a bit of um uh research with the female orgasm mm-hmm. correct mm-hmm. this is something i know nothing about uh you can ask any of my ex-girlfriends so uh <laughs> what um what uh research have you done yeah well um this has been i haven't really examined female orgasm in a while um but yeah this some of the research that we did um a while ago uh we looked at um, male attractiveness and uh, female orgasm. And we asked women, you know, did you have an orgasm at last sexual intercourse? And we also had women um, rate their partner's attractiveness. And basically what we found was that women who, um, you know, found their mates more attractive, um, they were more likely to have an orgasm at last sexual intercourse. And this is controlling for relationship satisfaction, uh, length of relationship. Um, I think one more other thing that I so can't remember. So it's not so, the motion in the ocean after all. No, yeah. So, um, yeah, it's really interesting. Well, it still could be, though. Yeah, it could be, yeah. To the extent that more attractive, sexually attractive, physically attractive men are simply better at inducing uh. orgasm. I mean, that's just it, is that we don't. I mean, right. there's a lot of Perhaps questions. Perhaps they have more practice and... Sure. I mean, that's another possibility. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Or she's, you know, letting it happen. Sure. She wants an orgasm because there is also the research suggesting that uh, that uh, women retain more sperm um, when they have an orgasm within a certain window. I think it's, I don't know, two minutes before and then until... What fifteen seconds after something? Yeah, I can't remember what the time frame was. A but there's longer, a, yeah. there's a little, it's a little window. So perhaps, um, yeah, women are saying, you know, 
I'm going. I had some. I had <laughs> some friends. I read a little bit about yeah. that like years ago yeah. or whatever, and I had some friends that were attempting um, to have a kid and struggling a little bit for a while. They've since had kids, but yeah. I was like, well, have you tried giving her an orgasm? Yeah. <laughs> Within the certain help. window, no pressure. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I mean, so much of our work on, on female orgasm has been guided by uh, the hypothesis uh, that female orgasm may function as a as a form of uh, mate selection device, or more mm. more specifically, as a sire selection device. Um, that is uh, that, uh, as Viviana mentioned, there there is good work indicating that uh, female orgasm actually causes significantly greater retention of sperm. Um, now, yeah. One, uh, for you know, so long as it occurs one minute before male ejaculation, up to forty-five minutes after male ejaculation, and I mean the difference is about women retain a, something like five uh, percent more sperm. That may not sound like a lot, but that translates into about twenty million sperm. Um, so it's uh, so that has guided a lot of the work on looking at women's uh, assessments of the partner's sexual attractiveness, physical attractiveness, because these are highly heritable qualities. Um, sexual attractiveness, physical attractiveness, and so it taps into the notion that um, you know part of female orgasm is uh, you know designed to um, select a partner or a sire with good genes mm. that'll then be passed on to a son, or the preferences for those uh, good genes will be passed on to a daughter. Um, so it's it's a really interesting area of work. Um, I mean, we weren't the first to get involved in this line of work, uh, but but I mean, and there remain people who are just utterly unconvinced that there's anything. Um, more to say than that females have orgasms because male orgasm has so been has been so intensely selected for over evolutionary history, sort of like male nipples. Um, females have orgasms because males have orgasms. Yeah. Males have nipples because females have, have nipples, but yeah, there's no yeah. functional value. And we've really challenged that over the last 15 years, as, ha- as have others. Um, I mean... Because, of, I mean, for the listeners, and I actually I talked briefly about this on on uh, a past episode is, is that, um, I mean, intuitively for people that aren't familiar with this stuff, it, it is a bit of a puzzle. Um, like why exactly is, is there a female orgasm? Because it's not happening every time. That's right. So it's not, it, it must not just be just this plain old, that gets you to have more sex or why wouldn't it just happen every single time? Yeah. Um, so, so that's so that's a bit of the challenge of figuring yeah. out. And there's remarkable variability. I mean, something like 13% of women report that they never have have achieved an orgasm ever under any circumstances. Um, yep, that's my girls. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's what I'm drawn. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, um, you know, and then even women who report, uh, and then women uh, will report that they sometimes do, sometimes don't. And so it's um, it's all the variability is tremendous whereas with men there's remarkably little variability <laughs> and it's often right. regarded as a severe you know disorder um you know, inability to ejaculate um right and it's it happens to something like you know less than one percent you know of men experience this particular disorder um so yeah i mean it is a puzzle um but i'm not sure it's you know i think it's jumping too quickly to say well Let's just call it a, a developmental byproduct right, of right. selection for male ejaculation. Um, because you shouldn't – if that were true – I mean, it still may be true. But if that were true, I mean, there is evidence indicating that there's some 
method in the madness of variability. Um, there's some predictable patterns uh, that we can see in the data. Um, so at any rate, you know, I think it remains an incredibly interesting area for future work. And we've still, just recently with one of our graduate students, uh, Yael Sella, um, she, she's been doing a bit of work on, on female orgasm and, and thinking about it and taking this adaptationist approach rather than just assuming that, well, it's probably just not a, uh, it's probably just a non-functional byproduct of male orgasm. Why not investigate it? You know, why not dig into it? Um, I mean, and let the data tell you, you know. Why wouldn't we want to learn more <laughs> about the female orgasm? Yeah. And you, yeah. And I was just thinking that, and having that perspective actually motivated us to then subsequently look at uh, men's interest in their partner's orgasm. I mean, that the fact that men are so interested in this topic, yeah. um, and in their part, and specifically, specifically in their partner's orgasm, tells you something about possibly about the the potential importance of female orgasm. I mean, if it were oh. an utter, if it were just a non-functional developmental byproduct, you wouldn't expect the majority of men that we've you know surveyed expressing moderate to intense interest in their partner's orgasm. I mean, it doesn't, you know, it's not proof of anything, but so we've actually looked at and documented that uh, men are particularly interested in their partner achieving orgasm when they're under, uh, when they're at greater risk of sperm competition. Um, so men who have spent significantly less time with their partner, um, so, sorry, uh, they've spent a greater proportion of time apart from their partner right. since they last had sex, they express much greater interest in their partner uh, experiencing orgasm at next sex. Hmm. Um, so at any rate, there's, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of interesting questions, and, but many of these questions are generated by testing hypotheses about the potential adaptive value uh, of orgasm, of female orgasm. So... Um, awesome. Well, we'll um, wrap up. I'm going to, here's what I'm going to do. And I forgot to remind you guys of this, but I always have my guests name a charity. Last time you mentioned the Richard Dawkins Foundation. Um, and uh, so you want, would you like to just plug that one again? Um, well, we just did, I guess. But also, uh, let me mention. And, uh, but uh, yeah. I'll, uh, what I actually put on the site, I have like a button and like the site and everything else that directs people towards it, too. So if there's something else in mind, and I apologize for yeah. hitting you with this. Uh, off, uh, no, that's okay. I'm just thinking, uh, I can't recall if it's a charitable organization, but uh, Peter Singer uh, has, uh, he wrote his most recent book, well, actually a couple of books ago, was called A Life You Can Save. And he's got a website. Um, I mean, it's it's grown into quite a large um, production. Um, it's called a life you can save. And basically, I it's, know this one. I wonder. Yeah. Did a past guest do it? Or see, it sounds really familiar. Anyway, yeah. go on. Yeah. So I I think that may actually function as a as a charitable organization as well. Um, so it's called. I believe you can go to life. A life you can save. I'll look it all up. Oh, yeah, it'll all be on the website okay. and everything, and I'll I'll maybe edit it in. Uh, okay. After, afterwards, yeah. since I screwed up and didn't give you guys a no, heads okay. up, that was my bad. Um, but now that we don't have anything to tr tr um, transition from, can you now tell me a little bit about what um, work you're excited about um, right now? Yeah. So, uh, well, I'll speak for myself. Although I think, uh, I mean. Viviana's aware of this work as well, but one of the things that I'm most excited about over the last couple of years is that we now have a, um, you know, a state-of-the-art uh, human semen analysis lab. Um, so we actually are 
uh, and we have IRB approval, sorry, Institutional Review Board approval to now collect uh, masturbatory ejaculates, copulatory are ejaculates. These, are these yeah. just bumper stickers on your car that you're reading to me right I know it, yeah. <laughs> Owner yeah. of state-of-the-art yeah. semen analysis. Lab. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, this is something I've actually thought about doing for at least 20 years, um, but I just, you know, it just... I, I stars didn't off line. to make no, a no. dumb joke. But yeah, no, 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 no. So we can actually. Uh, so we're actually uh, collecting data. Um, we spent the last. I mean, I spent the last twenty years studying psychological adaptation to sperm competition, looking at things like uh, variation in men's self-reported sexual arousal as an indicator of, um, you know, sort of a window into uh, the sperm competition psychology. Now what we're doing is we're actually collecting ejaculates. So we have uh, men uh, providing. Uh, uh, masturbatory ejaculates in uh, experimental and control conditions. So an experimental condition uh, would be, for example, uh, we ask them to masturbate while imagining uh, sex with their partner after uh, first for the first time after uh, she reveals that she's had sex with another guy. And so imagine uh, that you're now having sex with her. And the idea here, I'm, I'm sort of not doing a great job explaining it, but the idea is that you're sort of triggering uh, that purported sperm competition psychology. The control condition would be imagine you're having sex with your partner for the first time since she revealed that she spent more of your money, uh, more of your, 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 the couple's money than you had planned on. Um, <laughs> Why you? <laughs> yeah. So and that's, you know, I mean, it's, a, it's a little more sophisticated than that. But the bottom line is we're, we're you know, we're looking to uh, incorporate data on variations in uh, semen parameters. And so looking at, uh, so we actually have this technology now that uh, in 75 seconds, it gives you an analysis of 17 different clinical parameters of, of semen. So sperm number, sperm swimming speed, uh, uh, morphology, so whether it's normal. Swimming uh, speed. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we can get average swimming speed. We, we actually capture on video uh, the sperm moving. Um, That's terrific. Yeah, and then so now we just got approval to do some uh, – to collect copulatory samples, so we have couples coming in. They've been they have to have been involved for at least a year. Um, at any rate, bottom line is uh, they come in and they come in seven different times, and they bring in three copulatory samples. So she so they actually collect. Uh, they have sex. Uh, he wears a condom. They bring that in, and we can uh, look at things like is greater proportion of time spent apart, which we've used as an indicator of sperm competition. Is that associated with an adjustment in? Men and men's ejaculates, and in fact, there is work documenting that in God hundreds and hundreds of species. But only one lab has has investigated that in humans. They found, not surprisingly, that men upregulate the number of sperm that they include in an ejaculate where there's a greater risk of sperm competition. But it has never been replicated for the simple fact that nobody's ever tried to do it. Nobody's ever tried to replicate it because it's it's fraught with all sorts of all sorts of ethical and I mean, you got to have a thick skin to do this kind of research. I mean, it took us about eighteen months to get approval. Um, How is it finding volunteers? Because of it, I, I can start mailing you guys my used condoms. Yeah. <laughs> Thinking of you guys, yeah. here you go, special delivery. That, yeah, that actually does get um, kind of silly and kind of funny, actually, in a way. I mean, actually, we pay our participants, so we pay yeah. guys 20 bucks to come in and bring their sample in. Um, but then with couples, things get really kind of weird, um, and understandably so. In other yeah. words, you're paying the couple, but... So we sort of struggle with who do we pay here um, for copulatory samples. I mean, we don't want to pay her because that feels weird. Um, you're paying her for the copulation, but you don't want to pay him because, after all, she was involved too. And so we sort of kidded around about just dropping the money in between them and letting them figure it out. But what we ended up doing is uh, – so we, we do pay the couple as a couple um, – 
for each sample they bring in. Um, uh, we actually have the woman come in uh, as well. Um, she's fully aware of everything that we're doing and that's going on. So they, they, they have to agree. And that brings up other issues of, well, what kind of couples are these that want to participate in this research? And, you know, I mean, we'll have to investigate that further, you know. Yeah. Um, but at any rate, um, so it's really – we're very excited about it. Um, it's, it's a really neat technology that's now become much more affordable. Um, and we've now – we've also uh, established a, a penile plethysmography lab where we can actually assess – male sexual arousal with um, an expandable tube that's placed on the penis. This work is used, this, this kind of technology is used in forensic work and often uh, to sort of assess the sexual preferences of uh, men who have been um, charged with uh, pedophilia, for example. And so they'll show them pictures of children and see the extent to which uh, they uh, experience arousal. Because, of course, men will say they're not aroused, but uh, they're... Uh, their penile response may suggest something different. <laughs> a, yeah. you have a penis lie detector. We do indeed have. Yeah, <laughs> and we know there's a very high correlation between men's self-reported sexual right. arousal and their erectile arousal. Right. Um, so at any rate, um, that that's even newer technology that we have. But it's something. Once again, I think the issue is, you know, I mean, uh, we've done a lot of this work over the years, and we often do rely on self-report. You know, how sexually attractive is your partner right now? And, I mean, I appreciate the criticism that, hey, you're just relying on self-report. Um, well, I mean, in some sense, what else are you going to rely on? I mean, if you want to know how aroused he is, you ask. We also appreciate that there are other ways to go about this. But that includes things like looking at semen. It includes looking at, you know, having men um, uh, participate in penile plethysmography research. Um, so these are the idea is to get at these things um, in methodologically different ways. I mean, to the extent that we sort of converge on a similar set of findings from all of these different, you know, methods, then to that extent, are we more confident about what we're actually reporting? Hmm. So it's really exciting. It's really interesting and um, super challenging, but, um, but I mean, it's fascinating. It, it is. Well, I'm looking forward to catching back up with you again yeah. and, and seeing yeah. how all that technology is uh, paying off and coming along uh, sure. for you. Thank you, guys, Thank for, you. Uh, for coming on at Viviana Weeks Shackelford and Todd Shackelford with her second time. Uh, I appreciate it. And thank you, guys, for listening to the Here We Are podcast. Hey guys, don't forget to rate, subscribe, review, all of that good stuff to the podcast. Been uh, getting uh, tons and tons of great feedback. Keep that coming. It keeps me going. Go to the herewearepodcast.com website and you can go to Ask a Scientist to ask any questions or just to give feedback. I've been getting a lot of excellent feedback on various things from um, things we can do to change the website layout to uh, how how various apps on on um, different phones are processing. There's There's been a few hiccups with just different apps um, downloading different RSS feeds, a bunch of stuff that I know nothing about. And my, um, my, uh, my partner, um, Ramin Nazer, my web guy, who he also did the cover art. Um, and he, he's, uh, he does, gives me a lot of advice on the show and everything else. Make sure and follow him. Um, look him up at Ramin Nazer on Twitter. Um, I think that's his Twitter handle. <laughs> I should have looked that up ahead of time. Yes, it is. Um, R-A-M-I-N-N-A-Z-E-R. 
and go and check his stuff out. Um, but anyway, any feedback that you have, I usually end up sending off to him if it's regarding um, any any kind of um, app-related stuff or anything like that. Anyway, next week on the program, make sure and check out... Um, I got this person off of something I saw on Netflix. Some listeners recommended that I check out um, Brain Games on Netflix, uh, which is an excellent program. I've only seen a few episodes. I actually reached out to someone that I saw in the first episode. So if you go and watch the first episode of Brain Games on Netflix, maybe it will prepare you a little bit for um, for next week. Uh, we're going to be talking about visual perception um, and how our brain puts together this um, this whole visual world that we call life. And um, we're going to talk about how accurate it is and is not. And, um, and yeah, how those old eyeballs um, get info into the brain and work with a bunch of other processes. I know quite a bit, as you can tell. Um, eyeballs and brains. Uh, yep, that's about all there is to it. So make sure and tune in next week to find out a lot more than that. I stopped through the University of Madison to talk with Boz Roker. And thank you guys so much for listening. You're awesome. Let's say uh, Seinfeld was on an island, yeah. and he was blowing Boris Karloff. What would, it, what would that be like? <laughs> it might go something like this. Oh, Mr. Karloff, I loved you and Frankenstein, and I love giving you a blowjob. Why, Mr. Seinfeld, I'd love having you fuck.